0: Welcome to episode 50 of the Forward From 50 podcast, where we interview people over 50 who are pursuing new direction for their lives. It's an opportunity for men and women to tell their stories, their way, in their own words. I'm Greg Gerber, the founder of Forward From 50, and your host for today's show. Beverly Pimsler is one of those rare individuals who discovered her purpose relatively early in life. When she was seven years old, Beverly moved from the Deep South to Columbus, Ohio, where her classmates consistently made fun of her southern accent. Even her teacher said something had to be done to tone down Beverly's accent. That experience helped Beverly realize just how important language was in not only understanding other people, but for fitting into society as well. Through training, Beverly learned Yankee language by mimicking other people as they were speaking. She followed the same process to learn French after meeting her husband, who was a French professor. Together, they developed a program to teach people to speak just about any language. The couple partnered with a friend who is a brilliant marketer, and shortly after Beverly's husband died, the Pimsler Language Program was born. For decades, people around the world learned to speak new languages by simply listening to cassette tapes. To tell her remarkable story about living life fully while constantly learning something new, please welcome Beverly Pimsler to the show. Thanks for joining me today, Beverly. I really appreciate the time. You sound like somebody who is one of these rare individuals who discovered a life purpose very early in your life. Tell us how you got involved in language.
1: Oh, I'd be delighted to. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking at you in this beautiful Arizona background. I think it started when I was seven years old and we moved from the Deep South to Columbus, Ohio. And I realized that whenever I spoke up in class, everybody laughed at me and made fun of me. And I had a cousin who used to bring his friends out to our house and stand outside of my window after school and say, Beverly, y'all want to come down yonder? And then they'd run away laughing. So I stopped speaking in class, and finally, the teacher called my mother in for a conference and said, you have to do something about this accent. And so I was sent to Frida Fraser School of Elocution (gasps) to get my Southern accent. And maybe this is a bit in hindsight, but I think even at seven, I realized how important language was as identity. And how it could make you an outsider if you didn't speak it right. And if you got it, you got to be an insider. So in my book, I call the chapter in which I discuss this Yankee English. I first language I learned was Yankee English. And I found through this class that I was a good mimic. I could mimic speaking what I called Yankee English. And this kind of encouraged me to think, oh, when they offered languages, I tried to learn another language. So that really set me on my path to language learning.
0: It sounds like it. And that's a fascinating story because all of us learn language, right? We're not born speaking whatever language we're natively to. And we've got so many people coming into America now who don't speak English very well. And just language fascinates me. I don't speak a foreign language myself. But I've been involved with language as a writer for yes. for decades. So this is nice. You had to take a Pimsleur language I program. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think the first one is free online. <laughs> now, this is something that you and your husband developed?
1: Yes. So to go fast forward, I learned to speak French. I My dream was to go live in France. And I met my husband, who was a French professor. So that seemed to be a very good extra perk. And he told me when we first met that he had what he thought was a very revolutionary idea of a new way to speak spoken language. And we received a grant from what was then called the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare to go and spend six months in a country of our choice, which was not a romance language country, and develop a program to prove we could teach language in a, a certain number of hours, at least a, a very beginning language skill. And so that's what we did. We went to Greece. We chose Greece for a lot of different reasons. And we came back and they loved the program so much that they wanted my husband to quit his job and me too, we were both teaching, and worked for them. And my husband said, oh, if they think it's so good, why don't we go into business? Why don't we just set up a business and sell it ourselves? Which we did. We were not incredibly successful, I must say. We were academics. We didn't have a clue about how to market anything. But my husband had a friend who was brilliant, a brilliant marketer, and he stepped in. Unfortunately, my husband died very young, uh, much b- before the Pimsler programs were really uh, sold. Uh, I, since I had worked with him and I understood the method, I worked with additional people, and it did very well. And a few years ago, I sold the company to Simon Schuster.
0: Wow, that is an amazing story because your business started in the basement. Is that what it says? <laughs> you said that's it. Yeah. So here we were, two academics, uh,
1: tried to market this very unknown product. I had a little marketing experience because before my marriage, I was working in publishing. And I knew a bit about marketing. And I purchased some lists of people we thought would be interested in the program because it was a, a method to teach rapid language acquisition. but really was for people who wanted to travel, had three weeks before they went to Greece, wanted to speak some Greek archaeologists. We thought maybe Greek schools that taught Greek. We were a little small house, so I went to Macy's and bought some kind of a shelving system and put it in the basement beside the washer and dryer. And while I was throwing the diapers in, we had two kids 18 months apart, and I would address all of the little the boxes that contained... What were then tapes? Probably very few people even remember those. They were little boxes of tapes, and I would carefully send them out. And when we got to twenty-five, we thought, "Oh, that's really great," <laughs> but of course, we needed to have two thousand in order to make any real profit from it.
0: Wow, that's incredible! Yes, I do remember the tapes. That's what all yes. you had for years. I mean, right. Uh, what was it? Earl Nightingale made a whole. Empire out of books on cassette tapes and things like that. Right, right. absolutely. So, is it possible, really, for somebody to learn a foreign language in three weeks? Oh my goodness! Yes you will
1: you will be speaking you will be speaking after thirty minutes, and that was the. And again, I'm not plugging this because I'm no longer a part of the company. I'm not trying to do a sales pitch, but of course, I believe in the method, and obviously enough people believed in it because Simon and Schuster would not have purchased it. And my husband's idea was that you could take a foreign language for years in high school and then get to the country of your choice and not be able to say two words because it was really language teaching back then was based on t- teaching you to read and to learn uh, grammar by learning grammar rules that's not the way you learn to speak as we all know you learn to speak by listening and hearing and imitating so he had a very original method and obviously it works the the Pimsler method has now been around for 52 years and there are now 52 languages
0: wow Uh, that's incredible how many languages can you speak
1: I'm really only fluent in French, but that is not just because of the Pimsleur method, but because I lived in France for 14 years. And and then I get along pretty well in Italian, the Romance languages. And then we lived in Germany for a couple of years, so I do speak German. And of course, from the Greek experience, I still speak some Greek. But every time I go anywhere, I brush up (laughs) by taking a a Pimsleur.
0: That's program. a great Anyways, idea.
1: I'm not here to advertise, but just to discuss how it was right. conceived. What did you like most about living in France? Oh, the food. <laughs> <laughs> I said that like spontaneously. Like. I, I love to cook. That is really one of my hobbies. And food is an institution in France. You don't eat, you dine. And I love the fact that we live just a couple of way, blocks away from this gorgeous French fresh food and vegetable and meat and fish market. And that to me was a hobby. Also, living in France, you're certainly much closer if you want to hop across the border from where we lived in Nice. You want to go to Italy for breakfast. You just hop on the train and 20 minutes you're having a cappuccino in Italy. So that was also a reason I loved to travel and it was much easier.
0: So. I would imagine that in Europe, with all the countries so close and all the countries speaking different languages, that would be a remarkable opportunity for somebody to really delve into languages and understanding Absolutely. them. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And that was also, so we lived so close to Italy, I decided, okay, so now I'm going to learn Italian. And, and that, <clears throat> that has added to my life as well.
0: I remember reading Julia Child's biography and how oh, she fell in love with France as well and the French people.
1: Absolutely. I'll tell you a little story because I have a little Julia Child story. So because I love to cook, I have gone periodically to France to go to cooking schools. And one of the cooking schools I went to was the school of Patricia Wells, who has her school in her gorgeous house in the south of France. And she was Julia Child's disciple. And when Julie Childs died, she gave Patricia Wells her stove. And so I found myself in France cooking on Julie Childs' stove. That was really a
0: thrill. That is cool. Not many people could say that, I'm sure. (laughs) So you ran the company as a single mom. Time, no, okay. I did not run the company. Charles
1: Heinle really ran the company. I was certainly involved in it, but he was the marketing genius. And But, of course, I was the one at the very beginning who trained all of what we called native speakers to write additional language programs. Because when Paul died, very young, we only had five language programs. And under Charles's tutelage, we got up to 30-some. And then Simon & Schuster purchased it and had added they had an additional 20-some programs to it. Okay. But I was involved with the running of the company, but certainly uh, he was the marketing
0: genius behind it. After your first husband died, you met somebody else that you fell in love with and lived with for a number of years. I
1: did. I felt so fortunate. I was widowed for six years and I met Peter and he was European and my children were in college and we decided to go back and live in France together. So that explains the 14 years that I
0: lived in France. Mm -hmm. And you have an academic career as well, right? I
1: did. Yes. I taught comparative literature. When I married my husband, I was in working in the publishing industry. And one day he said, I have three months vacation every summer. Um, wouldn't it be better if you went into teaching? So we both have three months vacation. So I applied for a fellowship and got it and had a teaching fellowship for a while and then got my master's and started teaching and then uh, started working on my Ph.D. So, yes, I, I, I did teach for a long
0: time. And your degree was in what?
1: My Actually, my master's, I started out getting uh, a master's degree in English literature because I had been an English literature major in, in college. But after we came back from Greece, I was so enamored of Greece and Greek history that I decided I would get a degree in ancient Greek and ancient Greek history. So that's what I did. And then I used my literature background to go into comparative literature. And I did my Ph.D. work at New York University in comparative literature. But unfortunately, my husband died while I was in the middle of doing my exams for my Ph.D. I was then a widow with two kids. And I realized I, I did not have the luxury of writing a Ph.D. thesis. So I went to work, and that was the end of the academic career. Although I have absolutely no regrets. I had a, a wonderful time teaching. I loved it. And then I did other things afterwards were which were equally uh, satisfying.
0: So I see after 50, you and Peter moved from New York City to Nice, France. We certainly did,
1: and all of our friends said, are you
0: crazy?
1: We both had fairly successful careers. But Peter was a photographer, an international photographer. He worked mostly in the Middle East. And now this really dates me. This was the time that the fax machine was just really starting to be used. And since I was working on writing these language programs, I could do it by fax. So off we went to Nice and we bought this fixer upper apartment on the right a couple, a block back from the beach in Nice and fixed it up. And it was just the best decision I've ever made in my life. I am so glad that we did that. Because at, as when you're 50s, you can start looking maybe toward a career change or maybe thinking I have five more years or 10 more years. So it, it was a major decision. And again, one which I will never regret.
0: Why did of all the places in France?
1: Oh, good question. First of all, when my husband, not only did he write the language program, he wrote a series of language books and with the very first check from the very first book, which actually my editor published from my old publishing company, we took that check in hand, got on the plane, went to France and bought a little tiny apartment on the beach. And so that apartment was our family vacation after while my husband was alive and after he died. We were very attached to that area of France. The apartment was in a little town called Antibes, about 20 minutes away from Nice. And Peter, who was an international photographer, needed to be near an international airport, which was in Nice. And also, we wanted to get out of the New York weather of us loved warm weather and so we first went to live in this little teeny apartment i had on the beach in on tea but the, when the winter came i realized the apartment was not winterized so everybody was imagining us in this gorgeous weather and we were sitting huddled with blankets around us and said no this doesn't work so we went down the road to nice and and purchased and that and that's where we lived for 14 years
0: my goodness now, how did your children respond when you said you were moving from New York to France? Oh,
1: that's a great question. First of all, my daughter moved with us. Oh. A, she had just graduated from college, and my children were both bilingual in France. And she, like me, wanted to live in France. So we moved to Antibes and the Nice, and she lived in Paris. And she was in, lived there for seven years, actually. My son, was, he was dancing to his own drum. And he was living in Alaska. He, that's another long story. And he said, Mom, go for it. I'd love it. I'll come visit you in Nice. So for a while, my daughter was living in Nice, my son in Alaska. And then after seven years, my daughter, who was a filmmaker, decided she really could not have the career she wanted. And she moved back to New York after seven years.
0: Okay. What's it like being an American living in France? We hear stories all the time that they're just not very pleasant to Americans. Is that true? Not certainly not from my
1: point of view. First of all, many of the French are so grateful to America because of their participation in liberating France yes. in the Second World War. So that is one thing. I do have to admit that the French are not tolerant if you do not speak French. They are less tolerant. No, I that's too harsh a statement. They are a little bit less tolerant if you don't speak French, if you make some effort to speak their language, I think they are more well disposed toward you. I think it is also because it is a huge cultural difference between a politeness in France. For example, when you go into a French store, even a grocery store, the first thing you say to the person behind the counter is bonjour. You say hello. So... This is something that maybe Americans aren't used to. And I remember cringing when I'd be in a store and an American woman who didn't do this out of any malice, but she would walk in and say, oh, do you have a size 42 and whatever? And the salesperson just looks at her like, what? So there is a different kind of of cultural cultural niceties, um, perhaps I should say, and you do have to learn that it is a different country and a different la- a culture with a different language, with a different set of expectations, especially around food. usually, in restaurants, you wouldn't order a, a, a coffee with your steak or a Coca-Cola with your steak. You can, but it, it's not the way thing. It's like win in Rome. <laughs> it's more like "win in Rome. And, and once you master those things, I think you have an easier time.
0: That makes sense when you think about it, Beverly, because when you're going into a country, and you're, especially if you're going to live there for a while, it's probably a good idea to learn some of the language just so oh, that you fit in. Part. And it, it expresses to the host country and the people over there that I'm trying, and I'm yeah, trying to right. learn, I'm trying to fit in. And they may have more patience with you as a result of that. But if you come in there expecting everyone to speak your language. That exactly. would be a big problem.
1: No, you're exactly right. And you really get it. So Peter did go to an intensive language school. And we always laugh that he spoke French like Salvador Dali. But he was so charming. And people will put up with your mispronunciation or your misuse of a word if you're really trying. So, so you, I, it's important.
0: Yes. You and Peter Peter died when you were in France. Is that right?
1: Yes. That was very traumatic and dramatic. My husband was 10 years older and he died at 48. And, but Peter and I were the same age exactly. And so it was a bit of a shock, but he had a genetic disease that had never been properly diagnosed. And by the time we went through all the diagnosis, it was really pretty much too late.
0: Oh, that's too bad. It was very bad. So from that point, you moved back to the United States?
1: Oh, it took me a couple of years to get my head around the fact that what was I doing in Nice? And my daughter had, at that point, moved back to New York and wanted to get married. And she said, if you want a grandchild, I'm not having one until you move back. So that was an incredible uh, motivation. Yes. So I moved back to New York, and within a year, I was a grandmother. Oh, cool. So that was wonderful. How many grandchildren do you have now? I have two adorable grandsons. Okay. That worked out. And then my daughter, while she was pregnant, wanted her children to grow up bilingual as she had. And so she started looking for all kinds of language programs for little children. And she didn't like any of them. And she said, I think I'll start my own company. And I said, oh, really? how are you going to do that? You have a full-time job. She said, oh, mom, you'll run the company. <laughs> and if it works, I'll quit. So that's, that's what happened. We started a company called Little Pim for the teaching of language to small children. And we did that together for 10 years. And we had 12 languages for little children. And actually, we just sold the company a couple of years ago.
0: Oh, well, that's fun. So you're teaching little kids just the basics of language, enough to get them through, right? And mostly it it is for understanding because uh, my
1: daughter, who is a very uh, careful researcher, started doing research uh, with neurologists of the benefits of learning a second language or being exposed to a second language as an infant. Our program was really geared to be used from the moment the child even was born, you just put these language tapes on and they hear a different language. And when they get to be two or three, they are going to be able to start responding and repeating some of those words. It was really a fun project. And we decided that we should film a lot of animals because kids really like animals. So we had them talking to the
0: dogs and the cats. and It's really a cute program. Oh, that's fun. Have you lived anywhere outside of New York City? Yes, Absolutely. When I was
1: a child, my father was a manager of a a shoe shoe store chain, and every year they would have to open a new store. People were not thinking of child psychology then, I guess. I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee. Then we lived in Memphis. We lived in Shreveport, Louisiana, Biloxi, Mississippi, Springfield, Illinois. And every summer, I spent the summer with my grandparents in Louisville, Kentucky, but as an adult. Uh, I lived in New York City, and I also lived in San Francisco. Uh, I I wanted to have the experience of living on the West Coast as well. And my mother had a place in the winter in Tucson, so in the winters I would go down with my kids to Tucson, Arizona, favorite state of mine.
0: Is it really just a little south of me, by about exactly. two hours? Yeah, very good. Right. So when you were in your sixties, you took up dance, and I you, or you did. learned a new one. Tell us about that. Played yeah, when Peter was in the
1: hospital in Nice, I was a wreck, and I just said, "I'm not driving." It was all these winding roads, so I had to take two buses to visit him. When I would come down uh, from the first bus, I usually had a waiting time to get the second bus, and it was at this large square, and it was at the end of the day, five six o'clock, and there were people dancing the tango. I had never thought of dancing the tango. But the music was so beautiful and the dance was so beautiful. And after Peter died and when I moved back to New York, I had what I call my Richard Gere moment from the film Shall We Dance. I was walking down Broadway and I looked up and I saw all these people dancing the tango. I didn't even think. I just walked up the stairs, asked the receptionist if I could sign up for tango classes. She was like 20. So she looks me over and she said, oh, I've. You ever danced before? And I said, oh, no. And she said, you know, it's really hard. Maybe you should try salsa. That's easier. I said, no, I want to dance the tango. So I signed up for these classes. And my teachers kept saying, oh, you're very musical. I had no idea I was musical at all. But long story short, yes. In my late 60s, I started dancing the tango. And I became obsessed with it. First of all, it was wonderful to do that. I was still grieving. You cannot grieve while you're dancing the tango. You have to concentrate on your steps, on the music. And my teachers advised that if you really want to learn fast, I didn't have 10 years to learn to dance the tango. So I started going to classes three, four times a week on the weekend. There were what are called milongas, where you dance all day, you dance all night. And then I met new people. Who they weren't interested in. Nobody's interested in your life story. You're interested in dancing together, so it was a wonderful way for me to exit my interior grief and to concentrate on something new. And it was fun. And I did it for thirteen years.
0: That's incredible. Uh, do you think dance is disappearing in America or even around? Oh, the- not.
1: No, if you live in New York, it certainly is not because there are ballroom dancing groups, folk dancing groups. I tried them all, by the way, while I was doing the tango. I also tried to do some folk dancing in the park. I did ballroom dancing for a while, but the tango was really, really my first love. And so I think dancing really saved me in many ways. It was very difficult to get over a second loss of a second partner. And I think that was uh, an enormous help for me. And I would advise anyone who finds himself in my situation, dance.
0: Are you performing in dance as well? Oh, no.
1: Actually, when I did dance with a partner and we were on cruise ships, we were always asked the class to perform. But that was as much performing as I did.
0: That's neat. So you took up another hobby now in your 70s is that right which is right uh
1: yes it's the late 70s i started oh, writing my. i had always loved to write and when you're a, a teacher i was a lecturer so i had to write my lectures and i i did do a lot of editorial work when i was working in publishing and actually it was my daughter's idea when i stopped dancing i thought oh now what am i gonna do we were the company was over and she said mom why don't you write your memoirs? And I said, oh, no, I'm not going to write a memoir. That's for famous people. That's for Jackie Kennedy. At, but I, I did decide that what I wanted to do was to write about my family, my great grandparents who lived in Kishinev, Russia. And I knew the story of my grandfather on both sides fleeing the pogroms. So I started doing a lot of research uh, into that era. And and I my one of my uncles was a photographer and he had hundreds of photos of my grandparents and what, the great grandmother and I found a slew of photos from Russia from the eighteen hundreds of my great grandparents so I put this book together based on photos and based on that I was accepted at some writing workshops. And I just printed that little book out. It's called Kishinev to Kentucky. But then, so I took that book to a writing workshop and I was going to perfect it, I thought. And the woman who was running the workshop had coincidentally been a widow with two children and had been invited to Greece and had taken the Pimsler Greek method. And she said, Beverly, That's the story you have to write. You have to write about how that started. So that got me to the second book I wrote, which is called Repeat After Me, A Love Affair With Language. And that's the book that I'm hoping to publish soon.
0: I hope so. So it's in the process of being written at this point. Oh, it's
1: being written. It's in the process of finding an agent. Okay. Finding an agent, I'm discovering, is more difficult than writing the book. (laughs) So I'm in the process of doing query letters, but the book is done. It's a done deal. And I have actually published some chapters of it in different women's magazines. So we shall see what the future of that is.
0: That's wonderful. I, I like the fact that you're telling your story because it bothers me as a writer that so many seasoned citizens take their story to the grave.
1: And yes. it's
0: just, it's not benefiting anybody. And everybody, excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead.
1: Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story and think, oh, what did I do? It wasn't very important. And But what you have done in your life is important. And even if you just write it for your children and your grandchildren, as I wrote this little book, Kishinev to Kentucky for my children and my grandchildren and my cousins, and all of them are so grateful that i put these stories down because they will disappear and we are really the keepers of our family's histories. And even if we don't think those stories are important to us, they really are important to our children and our grandchildren. So I would encourage anyone who is of my vintage, there are many writing courses for free at libraries, memoir writing courses. If you don't like to write, you can dictate. I dictated a great part of my book just into my phone and then put it into my Word document and edited it a little bit, edit the ums and the alls out and so on. And then there are editors who can help you. But I do think it is very important to not
0: let your story. I agree. Okay. At Forward From 50, I've interviewed a lot of writers for some reason. And then I was making that comment to somebody a couple of months ago, and they said the reason for that is they've got so much knowledge So much experiences that when you get 50s, 60s, 70s, you can become a teacher. And writing is a way to teach people. So I like that you're doing that.
1: It's been very satisfying. Frustrating sometimes, but (laughs) very satisfying.
0: Right. Something that you had mentioned earlier that really impressed me as well was when you stopped dancing and you said, now what am I going to do? You found it. And you found it in writing. So even though dancing physically wasn't you weren't capable of doing that anymore, you found something else and a different way to utilize your talents and continue to grow. And I love that about your story.
1: I think everybody has something in himself that he doesn't know. I think we all have a lot of untapped abilities and it may take a while to find what it is, but we have a lot of chapters. We have a lot of chapters. I'll I'll like this little story when Peter and I went to Russia, he bought me uh, a little Russian doll. Do you know what those are when one little doll that one little doll is inside of another yes. little doll one through the top, and then there are graduated little dolls inside, and he gave it to me, and he said, "You are like a Russian doll. You have a lot of different people inside of you and I thought, everybody is like a Russian doll. you just have to." take the top off and look inside. And I think that many people have
0: unexplored talents and they should try to untrap them. Do you have any advice for people over 50 to help them identify or actively pursue their passions?
1: I don't know how. I I think I would encourage them to actively pursue whatever passion you have because you really don't know how long you or your partner, even if you don't have a partner how much time you have and i guess my biggest advice would be don't put it off right figure out a way to do it now that would be my
0: advice right you said that your first husband was 48 when he passed away 48 yes okay and peter was how old 64 64 so not even retirement age so you guys packed in a lot of experiences before most people even think of retiring and doing that. And I'm
1: so glad we did, because other people said to us at the time when we moved to France, why don't you wait till you retire and you'll be financially secure? Because we weren't really sure financially how we were going to manage in France. But one reason we moved there at that particular time is that the franc was very strong, so that our dollars went a long way. And Peter, who was a Holocaust survivor child, knew that there may not be any future ever. And he said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it now. And I'm so glad we didn't wait because he did not make it to retirement age.
0: Absolutely. So now you are in your upper 80s. What's next for you? Do you still have things on your
1: bucket list you want to do? Oh, yes, I still have things I want to do. And one thing I want to do is to go back to something I did while I lived in Europe is to teach English as a foreign language, because when I was in France, I taught, I gave private English lessons and I did that in Germany. And now with this huge influx of migrants into the United States, who are being held back if they do not master our language. once I can finish with this book, that's what I'm going to go back to do. I'm going to teach
0: English as a second language in New York. That's incredible. In your late 80s. So there's always <laughs> well, something not, to do. not quite
1: that late, but <laughs> uh-huh, in, right. in your in 80s, my, that's right. In, in my, my 80s.
0: Super. <clears throat> so when do you think your book, Repeat After Me, might be published? You're still looking for an agent?
1: I'm looking for an agent. I'm going to give it about, uh, I'm just starting to send my letters out. It usually takes okay. three to four months to get some kind of a response. If I don't get a response, my children, I said, "Mom, just publish it. Put it on Amazon. Exactly. So if I am nobody bites within the the next few months, I will self-publish it and and because I'm ready to move on to something else. I just I
0: love your (laughs) can-do positive. There's always something to do attitude, Beverly. That's inspirational.
1: Always something to do that will help other people too.
0: So we'll look for the book to be published at some point in 2024.
1: I thank you so much, sure. and I hope it happens. Thank you. How, this has been so enjoyable.
0: How can people get in touch with you or connect with you if they'd like to know more about you or to even say hello?: Oh,
1: I can give you my email.: okay. I would be delighted. Super. I think you have it. It's okay. beverly okay should do do you want me to just no, say I, it online?
0: <laughs> I can I can edit that in. That will be Okay be a problem. that would be great. Okay. That would be great. super. Thank you so much for your time, Beverly. I really appreciated it fascinating stories you have, and I'm glad you're putting that into a memoir so that your family and others can enjoy your experiences as well.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. This has been a real pleasure and an honor. Thank you again.
0: I was fascinated by Beverly Pimsler's story, especially how she discovered the important role language plays in determining someone's success and ability to fit into society. Six years after Beverly's husband died and all her children were in college, she and her new partner moved to France when Beverly was in her 50s. All her friends told her she was crazy to give up a successful career in New York to move to France, but her children were supportive and Beverly said it was a major decision she never regretted making. After her partner died in France, Beverly returned to New York to be closer to her daughter and eventually her grandchildren was her daughter's idea to develop a language program for young children. So they launched a company called Little Pim to teach preschoolers hundreds of foundational words in a dozen different languages. Yet, Beverly never stopped learning herself. When she was in her 60s, Beverly took up dancing and learned to tango. In her late 70s, she took up writing. At first, she wanted to write a book about her family history, but others encouraged her to write a book about her love affair with language, which she hopes to publish soon. Now in her 80s, Beverly has no intention of slowing down. With the huge influx of migrants coming to America, once her book titled Repeat After Me is published later this year, Beverly intends to return to teaching English as a second language. People can connect with Beverly by emailing her at beverlypims@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's all I have for this week's show. If you'd like help in identifying a purpose for your life or to get help planning your next steps, I'm offering a complimentary brainstorming session to members of the Forward From 50 Facebook community. For details, connect with me on Facebook or visit www.forwardfrom50.com. I'll have another inspirational interview on the next episode of the Forward From 50 podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you like this show, please consider leaving a review wherever you download the episodes.